Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and we are back from a brief uh, summer respite here. Uh, I hope your month has gone well here, Chris. We are back, but uh, the sports world did not stop, and we are sort of heading to the final stretch of the pennant races and the beginning of the NFL season, so lots of interesting news on the horizon. So a lot going on here as, as this episode is coming out here. We're beginning the uh, U.S. Open of Tennis, the last major of the year with a lot happening in and around the uh, the world of tennis. Live Golf, shifting over to golf, probably the biggest story happening in the business all year long. More happening in and around the world of golf and how the PGA Tour is responding. And some real interesting news uh, coming out of the world of betting with FanDuel and some of their recent activities. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Ahmad Nassar. A lot of folks uh, listening to this podcast know him from his prior roles with the uh, NFL Players Association and One Team Partners. Speaking of tennis, he is moving into the world of tennis with a a uh, pretty uh, impactful new venture uh, with the uh, Professional Tennis Players Association. So we're going to have a conversation with Ahmad about that. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Ahmad Nassar, newly named as Executive Director of the Professional Tennis Players Association and Chief Executive of its for-profit affiliate, Winners Alliance. Formerly President of the NFL Players Association's Players, Inc. and founding Chief Executive of the larger player licensing focus, One Team Partners, Nassar has moved to the PTPA, a trade association, to aid men's and women's tennis players around the world, advocate for their interests, and help create a more sustainable financial model for a larger pool of professional players. Within that effort is the development of Winners Alliance, which will create a group licensing program that resembles successful efforts made by several players' unions and major team sports. Winners Alliance is seeded in part by a $26 million fundraising led by Pershing Square Foundation and Prism Capital. Prior to joining the NFLPA, Nassar worked as a litigation associate, first with Latham and Watkins LLP, and then Patton Boggs LLP. Ahmad, welcome to the program. Thank you. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Thanks, Eric. Very happy to be here. So uh, sort of did the uh, sort of brief summation there of your career here. I think sort of the obvious question to start here, you've been doing a lot of stuff at uh, the NFLPA and then obviously one team partners here. What was the impetus to leave what was a great gig and, and move into this new venture? You know, it was really kind of two separate things. It was the right time for me um, to sell my equity and move on. From one team, we have, you know, Redbird, our original investing partner. Uh, it's already been reported selling selling their their stake. And just, you know, the broader market, it, it, I thought it made sense for me to move on and see if there's anything out there that, that might be of interest to work on. And um, lo and behold, this group of tennis players and Bill Ackman, who had been advising them, reached out to me for what started as really free advice. And, you know, just my experience at both the NFL Players Association and then all the other players associations that I've worked with and, and really been, been uh, my colleagues for so long uh, in baseball, men's and women's soccer, women's basketball and beyond. And so um, it's a real tight community. And so sharing some of those lessons with the tennis folks kind of 
frankly, one thing led to another and here I am. So I'm really excited and, and happy to be remaining in the Players Association athlete side, but but also, you know, feet squarely planted in both the commercial side, but also that nonprofit advocacy side to really try to help athletes capture more value. So Ahmad, from a commercial perspective, there are clearly similarities between what you're about to do and what you did with the NFLPA and one team. But I guess my question is, are there real big differences that you see? Is tennis in some ways different than some of the other uh, sports from an ability to monetize and some of the commercial things you'll be working on? Yeah, I think that's, that's a big part of what drew me to this. So the answer is yes. I mean, every sport's different, but tennis is really, really different. And, and in both ways that make this more complicated, but also a bigger opportunity, right? So the opportunity side, you know, it's an individual sport. It's not a team sport. And so that, that, has, that has opportunities and challenges. And it's an individual sport where they don't wear a jersey. And I think that's fascinating because every sport that I've worked in up until this point, you're wearing a very overt jersey of a team, of an event. And, you know, here... You, you sure you have the Wimbledons and, and, you know, we're sitting here on the precipice of the U S open it, there are big events. There's the grand slams, but by and large people tune in to watch the people who are playing the individuals who are playing. And I think that's just a tremendous opportunity and it's one V one and then doubles is, is two V two. And, and you're, it's a sport where in golf, that's also an individual sport, but by and large, if, if the three of us went golfing, we're playing against the course, Right. And as opposed to tennis, where I'm staring across at you every single point. And, and there's just a difference there that, that is, again, presents a set of opportunities and challenges. And then it's, it's global. And you think about these tours that these players play on, it's an individual sport. It can be very isolating. And yet you're ping-ponging, pinballing across the globe, you know, from tournament to tournament. And, you know, depending on how you do, you could be there for a few days. You could be there for a couple weeks. And it just kind of happens, right? And that is a really different dynamic than the very regimented sports that I've, I've worked in where, you know, the teams are scripting their Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you know the travel day and there's a routine and there's a bunch of people, not just your teammates, but, but the staff and the coaches and all those other people going with you from place to place. I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And the global aspect is a huge opportunity and something that, you know, I personally am looking forward to just, you know, both my parents immigrated from Egypt and, and it's just something that has always appealed to me is, is a global flavor. And certainly tennis has that. The relationships, of course, between leagues and unions, leagues and trade associations, uh, certainly a delicate thing that go through their various cadences. As you're moving into this role, what kind of reaction have you gotten to this effort from the WTA, ATP? What do you expect it to be? What kind of relationship are you looking to create with these entities? Yeah, so you phrased that really delicately, and uh, I appreciate that. The question also highlights one of the big differences as well, which is as opposed to just the NFL on the other side of the NFLPA or just the NBA on the other side of the NBPA, here you have the WTA, the ATP, the four Grand Slams, each individually, the ITF. You have no less than seven distinct entities who oftentimes don't agree. I mean, just look no further than the Wimbledon ban on Russian players, right? And the ATP and WTA's very strong vocal opposition to that. 
you know, on the one hand, you might say, well, gee, we're adding an eighth at least to that mix. But I would say that having somebody on our side that is really just player centric, which is, you know, our focus and our, our mandate and, and representing the whole player, because all of those entities kind of focus on different aspects of the player. We're trying to build, you know, a, a true orbit around them and not just, you know, from the tours and grand slams or governing body perspective, but also the agent community, the coaching community, the, the, the physios, all the, all the different people that are involved in part and parcel of a tennis player's life. How do we help really all of that group help the players? And so I think given the fractured or fragmented nature of tennis already and the focus that we have on the player's side, you know, I, I call me an optimist, but, but I, I really look forward to working with all of those groups, maybe even hopefully trying to, to, to bring some of them together, and which I know is, is a topic that, that has been raised in tennis for, for years. And I think given my own track record, just it's always easier when you're working on growing a pie. And everybody, I think one thing everybody agrees on is that tennis has a lot of room to grow globally and in the U.S. in particular. And so I think we can help with that. And if, if everybody agrees that it has room to grow and we can bring value, yes, to the players, but, but really to everybody, the ecosystem as it exists and the fans, then I think people will engage. And I think we're all very cognizant of what's going on in other sports. And so I think, you know, that opportunity to engage is a good one. I'm, for one, really committed to, to doing that. I'm hopeful, and I think others will will reciprocate. One of the uh, key growth areas you plan to exploit is the group licensing rights. Would you need to or do you need to go sign up all the players individually to those rights? And what does that process and timeline look like to get all that together? Yeah, so the answer is yes, we do need to do that. Um, and that's no different than football, basketball, baseball. They go sign. Each player signs. I believe it's annually a group licensing assignment, a GLA, with their respective players' associations. So, yes, that's the idea. Um, we would ask players to sign that. We're not asking them to sign that yet. Um, we're still focused on building the players' association, having bylaws, player leadership, all of that. But the the immediate next step would be to build a group licensing program to make the union self-sustaining. Right. That's what. That's the model that all these other players' associations have. It's worked very well. It's incremental to what opportunities, particularly in an individual sport, already exist. If you think about the main group licensing categories, typically, historically, video games and trading cards with apparel for the jersey sports thrown in there. And so in video games and trading cards in particular, there are no annualized products that have all the players in it right now. And so the ability to say, hey, folks, as a players association, to say to the players, but also to their agents, we are embarking on building a group licensing program for you that will enable the creation of these products. And then the incremental opportunities of not just the royalties from those products, but also autograph deals that the players keep 100% of like they do in football, baseball, and basketball. So then following on Chris's question in terms of the outflow of this group licensing, putting the autograph piece to the side, these kind of deals that you're contemplating, is that going to be equally shared among the members or what are you contemplating there? Yeah. So for the base licenses, so trading cards and video games, products that have all the players in them and feature them equally. And, and Chris, I'm sure you've heard this, uh, 
this line before in other sports, those revenues, those royalties get shared equally among the player group who, who are in those products. And then any incremental autograph marketing in a commercial campaign on the cover of a video game, those are not shared equally. Those go to the player who is featured in those ways. Beyond those kind of core categories, video games, trading cards, are there other areas you might target? You think about the NFT space. Obviously, there's other new kinds of emerging categories. How are you thinking about the breadth of what you could do in group licensing? Yeah, I, I think it's we want to start with what we know and what's familiar and what doesn't exist. I think it's a short hop and a skip to all of those other areas, but in a way that, that stays true to the group, right? What we don't ever want to do is set up a dynamic we're picking off what are otherwise individual opportunities. I'll give you a great example. You know, many players have watch deals, right? And so, you know, there's probably a group type of deal that could occur in the, you know, uh, wristwatch space, but that's something that may impact what individuals are currently doing. And so, and you have that dynamic in, in football, basketball, and baseball as well. You know, LeBron James has plenty of endorsement deals and his players association is not involved in that, right? And so I would say the same thing here is what's the right balance um, where we're incremental? I mean, the real key is we're trying to add value that does not currently exist. And so, you know, I think some players may have NFT deals, that's great, but is a dapper top shot type of product existing in tennis? I don't think so yet. So how do we bring that to life? Um, how do we work with partners who value the group license because they don't want to go around and get 100, 200 separate individual deals licensed. And then the end result is that they say, we won't do anything in tennis. And that's, that's what we want to avoid, is we want to make sure that people are doing these products and activations in tennis, um, where historically they haven't. I mentioned the investors that are helping uh, stand up uh, Winners Alliance here, the uh, Pershing Square Foundation and Prism Capital. How did uh, those relationships come together and what are they going to be bringing to the table besides the check? Yeah, I should also mention that I'm also I've also invested, but at a much smaller number than uh, <laughs> than, than those two uh, entities. So the Pershing Square Foundation is, is Bill Ackman's charitable foundation. Um, Bill is a uh, pretty successful hedge fund manager in New York City. And Bill is a huge tennis fan, but also supporter. And he had, had actually predated my involvement with the Pro Tennis Players Association as an advisor for the last year plus helping them. He had actually gotten involved with some players years ago and just helping them try to get onto the tour and, and almost, you know, kind of sponsoring and connecting them, you know, relationship-wise and advising them. And that's where he really learned about the economics of the sport and how difficult it is if you're not one of those top 50, top 75 players, how you're almost underwater, right? And the Washington Post just did a piece a few weeks ago around the City Open about the economics for those players who are outside of those top levels and how difficult it is to, you know, you're all, they're all independent contractors. And so, you know, players make what they make, but then they've got to pay for their own coaches, their own physical therapists, their own, you know, obviously agents travel, uh, all of that. And so when Bill learned that, he thought, man, this, this, is, this is really tough. It's a really, really tough industry to break into. And so he's been a long time, long time supporter of the players and the PTPA now over the last year and a half. And so he really led the charge, reaching out to me. Um, he, he hired a search firm, Turnkey, does a lot of work um, in the space and Len Perna himself handled the search. 
And, you know, that that's Len called me and, you know, Len and I are both uh, uh, Michigan boys. And so we were part of that, that uh, Michigan mafia that, um, that is uh, loud. And so he calls me and says, Hey, you know, give these guys some free advice. And, and that's what I did. And, you know, that's, that's what really kicked off the journey, you know, to this point and, and where I am now, what we announced uh, last week. And so, you know, Bill's involvement and, and his, his investment, because I told him, here's what's needed, right? This is the structure. This is what works in other players associations, but we've got to have the funding and the runway for the first few years, because we may not make a nickel for a decent period of time, because we've got to build all of these systems and processes. We've got to hire we want to hire a world-class team. We're representing world-class athletes. You got to have the people to properly represent them. And that all need means resources. And, you know, it starts with money. And so he said, how much, how much do you need? I gave him a number and he said, great, I'll do it. And I said, well, this is really the players thing. So I want to bring more than just one investor in because I think it's important that it is not any one investor's thing it's not my thing, Djokovic's thing. It's not Vashik Pospisil's thing, right? It, it is the player's thing. And that's what it has to be to be successful. And so Bill immediately said, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Who do you know? And I said, well, these guys at Prism Capital, who used to be at BlackRock, have worked with me for almost a decade. And I actually went to college, University of Michigan, with one of the, the founders um, and partners of Prism Capital. And they had helped us create the One Team Collective Venture Initiative at the NFLPA, led our WHOOP investment, which um, you know turned uh, $3 million of marketing to $50 million of value for our very first venture deal, and, and really put us on the map for 10 different venture deals, and then helped me vet what became One Team Partners and the Redbird transaction, and, and really a deep understanding and worked with Women's, ba- uh, women's basketball, women's soccer, the MLS players associations. And, and really over the course of the last eight years, I would say have, have helped create hundreds of millions of dollars of value for those players associations. So I thought, and I told Bill, what better group to have involved than these folks who, who like me have done this in other players associations and, and understand group licensing? Um, because it is, a, it is a niche and it is something that is a learned part of the industry. And so, you know, literally a few phone calls later, they were on board and uh, really thrilled to have them on board. And so they're all, Bill is the chairman of the board. Prism has uh, their two partners, two of their partners on the board, joining me and Christina Francis as an independent board member as well. Ahmad, for these investors, is there ultimately going to be potentially an exit down the road the way in the Redbird case with one team? Effectively, they invested and there was a notion that at some point they are going to divest and sell to the next. How, how are you thinking about just structurally with these investors or other investors you bring in? Is there ultimately potentially an exit, even though the players may continue their involvement? Yeah, there's. I would say there's always an exit. Bill doing this through his, his charitable foundation is frankly less concerned about an exit per se, because no matter what that exit looks like, it's committed to charity. Um, and his foundation. And so there's, there's like a real, you know, different investors have different time horizons, including the players association. So I would say, you know, and, and Prism for, from their advantage, um, yes, they are a growth equity fund, but they're a long-term players association, group player rights, investor and player. 
So, you know, I think the answer is, of course, at some point, anybody who invests a dollar is, is you know, this isn't, it, it is not charity, but these are long-term advocates, long-term supporters of the players and the players associations. And anything that we do is to inure to their benefit, to the players. That's the only way it's going to work, right? Like, why would these players work with or do a group licensing program if it's not going to benefit them? And so that, that ends up being both the North Star, but also the moat around the business because other people, that's why they don't, you know, these players associations that do group licensing, they're the only show in town for exactly that reason, right? It has to be mission driven. Otherwise, it's, it's just not going to work and you lose the uniqueness of the business. As you get going and stand all this up, what has been and what do you anticipate your level of contact with the star players on the tours on a day-to-day basis? A lot, little, some, what What do you anticipate? Yeah, player engagement is going to be one of those things that, that we pretty rapidly measure, right? Because and how we're engaging, calls in person, Zoom, WhatsApp, you know, what have you. Um, and we're going to hire a staff and we want people to be able, you know, like I said earlier, these players are ping-ponging the globe. And so time zones are, you know, a very fluid thing. And so we want people to be able to be available to talk to players, no matter what time zone they're in, what region of the world they're in. We want to have a hotline for players that we're going to set up so that if they're facing any issue at a tournament, big or small, they don't have to sit there and raise their hand publicly to have it addressed, but that we can we can hopefully take up the baton for them and raise any issues that need to be raised. So I think we want to have a lot of engagement with with all the players. We don't want to overwhelm them. They have day jobs. They're pretty good at those day jobs. But that's that's precisely part of the value we're trying to bring because for a long time, the whole weight of that, and I think back to the Wimbledon discussion, which was a very uh, uh, you know open, public, and in the spotlight discussion, and you know. The players didn't have a players association that was really, you know, operational at that time. I mean, the PTPA existed, but it was still, you know, trying to build up the the capacity and the resources to work on the players' behalf. And so that burden, just watching it, fell squarely on those players. And and who, of course, do people go to gravitate to the most? It's it is the star players. And so here they are trying to prep for. I think it was actually the French Open. Because that you know that was first up on the calendar when when the Wimbledon news was 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 really hot and heavy, and you know they're getting microphones stuck in their faces and and having to speak to these really kind of weighty issues that you know sure they're welcome to have an opinion on but that they should not be forced to be the only person or persons advocating or or registering a view and not having a players association that that was there as a resource for them. So I want to have a lot of engagement with them. Um, but but it's a little bit like Goldilocks, not too much, not too little. Um, and every player will have um, their own. And that's true of every sport, right? I mean, D. Smith has engagement with Tom Brady and engagement with Aaron Rodgers, and it looks different for those players. And then he has engagement with his executive committee and player leadership who, you know, it's a self-selecting group, right? Because they want to have monthly calls and monthly Zooms, and sometimes weekly, depending on what's going on. And sometimes Richard Sherman, for example, star player, he's on, he's on the executive committee. Uh, Max Scherzer is on the executive committee for uh, baseball players. LeBron and Steph and, and others, other star players, I don't think they're on right now, but Chris Paul was the president of the NBPA for a long time till late last year. And so it really kind of varies. And, and I think we'll see the same thing in tennis. 
Well, we've seen a lot of player engagement in the world of golf, and uh, that certainly has been an interesting space with with Live launching. And and I guess the question that people sort of bat around is, could tennis potentially be disrupted in a similar way? And have you heard any rumblings of that potentially happening? Or how do you look at that model as it applies to golf, you know, whether that could transfer to tennis or what's your view of, of, of that? Oh boy. So we're, we're out of time, right? We got to go. You gotta go. Uh, <laughs> I thought you might ask about that. And just like the, the uniqueness of tennis that we talked about earlier, I actually think this moment in time in the sports world generally is really interesting and, and frankly attractive because, you know, every sport outside of golf is looking at what's happening at golf and, you know, either swallowing hard or, you know, getting a little, little, little hot and nervous. And, but there are also people looking at it like, like I am and saying, what lessons are there to learn here? Good and bad, right? And I'll tell you lesson number one for me is, you know, I'm running a players association, players, plural. And so if there are other tours or other, I want to represent all the players in tennis, right? Because we want to collectivize their voices. And so obviously there isn't that in golf and you're seeing the fracturing really of the players as a result of that. And so, you know, that's, that's a big lesson for me. I would also say that we've seen, I mean, listen, we, we, I think all of us are sitting in the United States. Competition is good, you know, and if you're a player who's stuck on the PGA tour, you are financially unquestionably sitting, looking at more opportunities and more money to be won today than you were a year ago. And if you certainly, a player who joined the Lyft Tour, presumably you joined because you were immediately getting access to better pay and higher uh, purses to play for and other lots of other accommodations that are of high value, right? The no cuts, the way they handle caddies. And so I think there's, you know, the word disruption generates a lot of fear in a lot of people, especially the people who are vested in the status quo. But the word innovation and the word growth has a pretty positive view. And I, I think what I would say is there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what's going on in golf. And I think tennis is ripe for innovation. Um, I'd say I think it's ripe for growth. Um, there are some, like I think, fairly astonishing stats that I've come across in this run-up and, and just you know, kind of drinking from the fire hose, learning about the, the industry. And you look at a sport that has globally more viewers than baseball and football combined, right? American football and MLB baseball, and yet is hovering around 10% of the revenue of those sports. Now, I'm not sitting here saying tennis should be at or equal, uh, equal to or greater than tennis, uh, football and baseball, but I, but I do think it should be a lot closer than 10%. And I think Andrea Gordenzi at, at, at the ATP, who's relatively new and a former player himself, I think everything he said, frankly, echoes that, right? And, and he said, he did, yeah, I don't think he pointed to golf, but he pointed to other sports like basketball and baseball in particular and saying, well, how do we better compete those sports um, on a global stage? And I think that's exactly the right question. And I think what I'm hopeful for is that a lot of the innovations that the PGA has unveiled recently precisely because the Live Tour exists, that we are able to, whatever the version of the, that is in tennis, that we're able to do that now 
as opposed to waiting a year or two or three and seeing what external forces may come in and try to, you know, in their view, revolutionize the sport externally. Because I do think that's a risk because some of those people might come in and have a different motivation, frankly, and have a different time horizon, right? And that's where you start to think, you know, okay, status quo can be crystallizing and, and stifling, but it can also, you know, that's where the history comes in. And that's where fans who tune in, that's what they care about. And if you lose the fans, you're done because then you're not having, and they'll find something else. And we've seen that. And that shifts over time because if you told me five years ago that F1 would be where it is now, bet every dollar I had to, to and I'm not a betting man, but, but that that was not going to happen. But it shows you how quickly that can change. And, and everything we're seeing, you know, to use like pickleball, for example, right? Like the interests, both in terms of sports that are played and sports that are viewed and consumed in other ways, really do ebb and flow. And so leaning into that, not, you know, fearful of what might be coming around the corner, but saying, how do we, and that's why I think to the question you asked earlier about the engagement with the ATP and the WTA and the slams, that's where I think we can really make some headway because we say, look, we all have a long-term horizon and we all exist in this, but nobody really is happy and content with the state of tennis globally right now, nor should they be. So why don't we take it upon ourselves to innovate and grow as opposed to, you know, sitting fearfully and seeing what disruption may come from external forces who may not have the same long-term view or frankly care about what fans care about and what they want and what the players care about and what they want. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around the Professional Tennis Players Association. We're going to be continuing to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Ahmad Nassar from uh, the organization for spending this time with us. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Ahmad Nassar again from the Professional Tennis Players Association for spending this time with us. And then uh, continuing in the world of tennis here, uh, as mentioned at the outset here, we are beginning uh, U.S. Open here in in the States. And obviously, uh, folks uh, paying attention from around the world, the last tennis major of the year. And here in New York, uh, in the New York area where Chris and I are both based, uh, you know, one of the great events on the sports calendar each year. And, uh, you know, we're coming into this event here in a a bit of transition, though, that, you uh, we do not have uh, Novak Djokovic uh, in the tournament because of uh, COVID-19 vaccine rules. And we're also looking at uh, uh, what is looking like the final appearance here for uh, Serena Williams, one of the great champions of the sport here. So ticket sales for the U.S. Open have been going through the roof here. But, uh, you know, after, you know, some tough years, of course, with the pandemic and uh limited attendance and all the modifications that they like uh, many other events have had to make over the past two years here. This really, again, sort of feels like uh, this great celebratory open that it's historically been. And now with this uh, additional resonance because of Serena, this does feel like it will be a, a very strong U S open Eric, in part because of Serena's final appearance, perhaps also the pent-up demand that you indicated. But I think the transition word is also pretty important because not only are we coming potentially to the end of Serena's career, but sort of late in their careers are Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. So there really is a ultimately changing of the guard impending here in the tennis world. 
And then I think more broadly, just the uh, the notion of what happened in golf and whether that could happen in tennis is sort of a cloud over this as well, in my opinion. So I do think there's going to be a, a great U.S. Open here, but I do think there's questions going forward. Yeah, and this sort of gets back to some of the issues that Ahmad uh, just raised in our conversation with him in terms of trying to be attentive to players' needs and service the things that uh, they're looking for. And when you've got this sort of disparate, uh, disintermediated sport with a bunch of different governing bodies, players as independent contractors and so forth, you know, that creates an environment sort of ripe for potential disruption. And then I think, as you correctly indicate, you know, we've had sort of the powers of the sport from a competitive standpoint be what they've been for the past 20 years. And we're now sort of entering this inflection point as to who the next sort of uh, wave of champions is going to be. And so there, there is a real sort of fertile environment for change here. Yeah, on, the, on this player issue, which we did talk to Ahmad about, he did point out that many players, uh, particularly further down the rankings, have a difficult time making the economics work. Yep. But I think even you know, as you get to the top players, they're certainly doing well. They're making a lot of money. But the question becomes, are they getting the, the fair share of the money generated from some of these tournaments, Eric? I looked at some past numbers, and I think the U.S. Open uh, apparently will generate this tennis tournament more than $300 million in revenue. Again, I, I I don't have that verified for this year, but in past years, that's the number that's been bandied around. And we have a prize pool this year that's $60 million. And that's sort of call, call it $60 million over if 300 is the right number for this year. That's a smaller percentage going to players than you would see in, let's say, the National Football League, right. where 48% of the, the revenues or some number like that go to players. So I think there is going to be over time a need to address some of those issues. Otherwise, you could see the golf type situation emerge. Yeah, but it's also important to remember that in the midst of these needed reforms, you still got sort of dealing from a position of strength because tennis is, you know, one of those great global sports that really translates across territories, across time zones, across nationalities, what have you here. And so as Ahmad and others have sort of uh, indicated here, there's a bit of a sleeping giant in the sense that for all of the economic power and success that tennis has already achieved here, there's a whole other gear or multiple gears to be found here if if some of this can be unlocked here. Because again, the sport translates globally in a way that few others do. I, I completely agree with you, Eric, uh, in the potential of tennis I just don't know whether the existing sets of organizations that are around the table are going to be the ones that will ultimately be able to compensate the players in the way they're going to be uh, they're going to want to be compensated longer term again looking at the golf example and so while I think Ahmad is going to be successful in in getting some of these deals in the trading card and video game space and some of these group licensing deals done. I, I also do wonder whether ultimately there's going to be some investors that are going to look at what happened with Live and say, you know, we can unlock some of those revenues and some of those opportunities and play, pay players a lot more than they're currently making. So again, I, it is an open question, not clear it's going to go in that direction. And I, I salute Ahmad for what he's doing. I just think the change ultimately may need to be not just incremental, but more transformational in that sport. Oh, I think it's a fair point. I think it's a fair point. But as we get into the U.S. Open, you know, and experience sort of the full breadth of uh, of what that tournament has to offer, 
you know, some of these sort of fan experiential things that live golf has tried to introduce to sort of shake up that sport, you know, in the context of tennis, us open already sort of offer some of that, some of that different sort of sensibility that the fan experience and the kind of whole vibe of a us open is very different from Wimbledon. You've got something loud and at night and raucous and, and lots of fans and lots of energy and, you know, all those kinds of things that live is trying to introduce in golf to sort of differentiate itself from the PGA tour. You already have a different, you know, different, you know, if you want a certain, you know, more traditional lane, the, the Wimbledon is for you. If you want something a little bit more modern and, you know, something akin to what we see at the NFL or what have you, the U S open is, is for you. And you already have some of those things, at least from a fan facing component embedded it within tennis again your point is well taken that now these structural things particularly as it relates to players need to be addressed yeah i i agree with you i think that, you know the u.s open has always been a, an amazing event because as you know people could go to some of the early rounds get very close to the courts yep. see players up close and and that's a great experience and so i think tennis has a lot going for it. even on the on the financial side, uh, there was a transaction, I, I believe, about a month ago, where Ben Navarro uh, acquired the Cincinnati tournament for $300 million, which was a really robust price. So even some of the ancillary events beyond the, the four majors are starting to see some real traction. And so, again, I think there's a bright future for tennis, and Ahmad is really going to be in the middle of it, which will be interesting to see what he does. Well, much more to come on that front here. Uh, I, I'm planning on heading out a, a few times for U.S. Open. I, I assume you are here as well, Chris. And uh, absolutely, you, you know, having a chance to actually again see this up close and personal again after a long time away, uh, it's going to be really good. Yep, absolutely. Well, we've. Uh, sort of referred here on multiple occasions here to uh, to golf and, and uh, live. And we've been talking about this all summer and really all year long. More developments here just in the last week and certainly since our, our last episode of the podcast. And uh, the most recent development is that the PGA Tour came out with another series of tournament modifications and purse increases to sort of address some of the uh, financial gaps that uh, uh, the live situation has exposed uh, relative to the players. But there was another really interesting development here where Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy, of course, two titans of the sport, they have come together in a new uh, technology venture called Tomorrow Sports, and they've uh, aligned with uh, Mike McCarley, uh, former head of the Golf Channel and a longtime industry executive. And they're going to be putting together a series of events, uh, particularly running on Monday nights uh, early in the calendar year before the golf schedule really heats up and we move towards the Masters and so forth. And, and it's almost sort of, uh, you know, kind of a top golf meets PGA Tour sort of approach where You've got a sort of interactive event that's being created that sort of really infuses technology and, and looks to bring a different approach to golf here. And, and again, it's, uh, you know, as we've been talking all the way uh, through the year here that, you know, what Liv has done is forced a lot of the existing stakeholders in the sport to think about the sport in whole new ways here. And I think this is uh, yet another example of that. I, I agree, Eric. I think this is going to be a positive development. I think it's going to be interesting to younger fans to watch this. It's going to be in prime time on Monday nights is their plan. Uh, it isn't the first innovation. You know, we saw the match concept yep. with uh, Turner over the last couple of years. It, it just shows that golf does avail itself to different kinds of formats 
that are entertaining also may be great for betting, uh, may be great for other kinds of media. So again, I think this is a positive step for the PGA Tour and Tiger and Rory. What I do wonder about is this notion of continuing to try to increase the prize pools where, as we know, Jay initially said, we're, you know, we can never compete with live on. Well, they on, sure, on they're sure pools. trying. They're and, sure and, trying. <laughs> and, and, and they're trying. And, uh, you know, which, again, I think is probably the right move. But then I wonder, well, what happened to that money otherwise? If live hadn't, where, where, did that, where is that money going? Why wasn't that money being distributed in the first place? So I, I think that the PGA Tour is going to be better in these circumstances where they're creating new opportunities and innovating. Certainly, they're going to try to match some of the money that Liv is putting out there, at least to some degree. But I think the road to success seems to be a more variety of programming and and new opportunities. Yeah. And it's interesting because in talking to a number of folks about this over the last couple of months, everybody's, you know, you've got all this sort of general vibe that I seem to be getting in these conversations is that, yeah, you've got a lot of back and forth right now, but ultimately these entities are going to have to figure out how to work together. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. And just, you know, reading more player comments just in the last few days and so forth. And, you know, particularly given how hard that uh, Jay Monahan and PGA Tour are holding to the uh, suspension component that basically if you jump ship, you're out and you're out forever, that that it just seems like that divide um you know, really is is continuing to widen and there's not a bridge between them. Yeah. And prominent players like Tiger and Rory, they're not just saying, you know, we support the PGA Tour. We're going to continue to play here. Putting their they're money where their mouth is. They're, they're, they're actively creating new ventures. They're organizing player meetings. They're, there's a lot of a, a more active involvement. So I think that does suggest whatever conflict or confrontation is happening, it, it, it's probably not something that's going to go away very quickly. Maybe over time, there, there is some uh, accommodation on both sides. But right now, it seems like they've both dug in. I completely agree. And I think we're going to see even more of that because there's a whole set of cadence of future live events here. we got another one coming up and then more through into the uh, early and mid fall here that as more tournament of more of lives tournaments happen and you and there's a, apparently another wave of players on their way in. And it just it does seem like the the two sides are really sort of hardening their positions. Yeah, they, they are. Uh, you know, getting back to, to Tiger and, and Rory's new venture, I, I also yep. thought it was interesting to see some of the other investors who were listed or, or announced. I think Dick Ebersole was in the yep. mix, Eric Rubman, John Collins, former colleagues of mine from the NFL. It did not appear, at least from what I could see, Eric, that we they announced. We had them on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, it doesn't look like they announced any institutional investors, or did they announce an amount of the capital raised? Obviously, Tiger and Rory have plenty of capital on their own. But I do wonder, as part of this announcement, whether this was put together very quickly to get this out, to get this deal done with the, the PGA Tour announcing the first initiative, and they'll, they, they may end up bringing in other investors over time or institutional capital. But it seems to me that this was put together relatively quickly to to make sure they have momentum in the marketplace. Yeah, I think that's fair and probably right. Also important to remember that uh, Dick Ebersole has been very close with Mike McCarley. Mike formerly worked for Dick, and they've uh, you know been very very close for a long period of time. And so that involvement didn't surprise me. And I think 
you know, just given what Dig Ebersol has done over the decades in this industry, that sort of, again, leads, you know, as as hurriedly as this may have been put together, adds an, an extra layer of credibility because whatever doors need to be open in this business to sort of help get these events together and put this thing on the air and so forth, you know, Dick's a very influential figure. Yeah, and this is not a, a, a normal startup given the, you know, the, the people who are involved and obviously coming out of the gate with this league, with the PGA Tour. So this is a great sports, uh, uh, you know, tech company right from day one. Again, I do wonder, you know, Tiger has previously been involved in a number of other ventures, uh, a full swing golf, pop stroke, which is kind of a mini golf venue business. I wonder whether he will continue to have those outside kinds of activities or whether those kinds of deals now will come through this new entity, but clearly, you know, incredible personality and and incredibly popular uh, despite being later in his career. So I I think they're going to be poised for success in, in whatever direction they go. Well, certainly much more to come there, because as I said before, this really has been probably the number one industry story of the year here and many more chapters to come on that. But uh, shifting from the world of golf to the one of betting here, you know, some We've talked uh, in prior weeks about some of the content ventures that a number of the major players in the uh, sports betting space have uh, have pursued uh, DraftKings among them. Well, one of the key rivals of DraftKings, FanDuel, they've come out with uh, a major one of their own here that they've uh, announced the FanDuel network, where this is going to involve a linear TV network, rebranding of the existing uh, TVG that FanDuel and its parent company, Flutter Entertainment, have owned. And there's also going to be an OTT service as part of this. And you really got the first fully fledged content venture of this type entirely devoted to sports betting. You know, so really notable stuff here, but, uh, you know, clearly indicative of the thirst in the market for having a full time uh, content presence such as this. It certainly does validate that or demonstrate that, Eric. And part of the reason, of course, is to drive signups and customer acquisition. Of course. You know, potentially at a cheaper per person cost than if you're just spending media. What I think is interesting about this is this is a fan dual branded service, as opposed to what we saw with some other companies like Penn National, which sort of relied on the Barstool brand or the Score brand or DraftKings, right. which acquired VEASAN or some of the other partnerships we've seen between betting operators and media companies, uh, SI and and 888. Uh, This is really putting the FanDuel brand first and foremost. And the advantage that they have is this distribution through the TVG, you know, linear network now gives them, you know, great presence in a lot of homes plus the OTT. So it really gives them an opportunity to do this. Yeah. And and further on, using that TVG base, they're really sort of using what uh, their programming assets were before and really trying to amplify them in terms of particularly horse racing, that there was a lot of horse racing content on on this channel. And that's going to be a base of this going forward. So not only is there certainly going to be their own sort of studio programming and odds and all those things that are in part uh, driven towards customer acquisition, as you uh, correctly indicate, but there's actually going to be live content as well. And that's meaningful. Yeah. And and I I understand, Eric, the live content is not only going to be 
horse racing, but they have a deal to run some basketball games yep. from, from other parts of the world. Whether that expands into other live game product, we'll have to wait and see. They also, as you alluded to, have brought along some of their personalities like Pat McAfee, who, who, who currently are associated with FanDuel and bringing them into this realm. I think that's important. The linear piece of it, while you know cable networks are not necessarily the, the growth vectors that they once were, is still important because more people are consuming content still through cable than, than, than OTT. And if you, again, think about the difference between that approach and let's say what DraftKings is doing, which is focusing a lot of energy right now on a new NFT project with, uh, with, the, with the NFL, the NFL PA, there yep. is a contrast there where, where the DraftKings initiative, again, they're doing lots of things, but particularly this NFT initiative is really focused on the younger next generation of fans. And my guess is that the linear network piece, at least of this network, is probably more established and, and mid, middle-aged to older fans. So there is different are different strategies at play. No doubt. And your prior, prior comment about the, the programming is well taken that they you know, won't certainly be a uh, bidder for um, tier one rights, but, you know, some of these smaller things and is potentially like some of these, you know, smaller college deals come up for renewal. You know, it's going to be interesting to see if somebody like a FanDuel uh, TV could be a player for some of this, you know, whether it be at the bottom of D1 or, you know, D2 and D3, some of these things with that maybe looking for a home and, you know, this is the kind of network that could do it. Absolutely. And also, you know, we've seen a plethora of emerging leagues essentially get to uh, higher levels of exposure in, in the last couple, you know, the, the PLL, the overtime leagues, the other uh, leagues that are out there, PFL. So it, it is possible that that those will also find homes in some way, shape or form on FanDuel. And the obvious question will be, you know, does does DraftKings respond or any of the other operators respond on their own thinking, well, now we need to create our own branded service, whether that is a you know, OTT type service or linear service. So when, when there's an action, there's always or typically is a reaction. And so we'll see how the rest of the industry responds. But also within the context of where we are vis-a-vis Wall Street and some of the issues, as we've discussed with some of these entities on the stock market and what they've experienced this year. And DraftKings, certainly no shortage of that. FanDuel, given its ownership structure, their exposure is a little bit different. But some of those public equity pressures are going to be coming into this equation as well. They are, Eric. And I, I, I think, you know, maybe part of the rationale for making these kinds of investments is it's better than spending, you know, $300 million a quarter on on media, on other people's outlets to try to attract customers. They may be able to make the argument, many of these operators, that by controlling our own media, controlling our own audience, we're going to have a more effective and controllable cost basis, yep. which has been part of the concern that Wall Street has had. They're spending so much money acquiring customers. And we haven't seen, you know, Florida still needs to be fully open, Texas, California. There's still a lot of real estate left in this betting space, which means a lot more spending. Well, so much more to come on that front here. But as we uh, come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to have a bit of a look ahead and see what else is catching our eye in the space. And Chris, I will start with you. Eric, a friend of mine, uh, turned me on to the notion of Savannah Bananas this past week. I was not familiar with that property or that team. You probably were because you spend more time in the baseball space. Yep. But the Savannah Bananas are, are essentially the Harlem Globetrotters 
of of baseball. They play in very entertaining form of of baseball, offbeat rules, irreverent style. They have uh, previously pe- played in the Coastal Plain Leagues uh, down in Savannah, but now they announced this week that they are going to be doing a a barnstorming tour nationally, effectively become a national property. They sell out. They're very entertaining. And I saw a comment from Mark Cuban that said this would be the only baseball property he would invest in, which I thought was kind of humorous and in a, in a, in a weird way gives it even more credibility. So uh, be, be looking to see how they do in their national rollout. Yeah, we've chronicled the banana story at length, as have others. And there's been some interesting documentaries made on, on them and so forth. And and you're exactly right in the um Globetrotters analogy is well placed and they've just got a very uh, it's sort of a showcase type of thing and they've got a very entertaining brand of baseball where the rules are all different and in time limits and 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 how the actual rules of play are uh, articulated but the whole thing is on providing a fun family night out and they've got a very unique spin on this and um you know, but it's been a regional play for the most part here to four. And so to take this and, and try to blow it out on a, on a much bigger geographic frame, you know, could be really big things ahead for them. And, and I wouldn't be surprised, Derek, if the minor league baseball world generally and potentially even MLB saw some things within what they're doing and, and wouldn't adopt them directly because they're, you know, there, there's got to be the credibility of the core game. But I think some of the things that they're doing around the time limit and yep. some of these other things, so there, there may yep. ultimately be some adoption of some of those things, whether it be minor league baseball or ultimately the majors that makes the game even more entertaining, especially for younger audiences. Yeah. And speaking of baseball, from my standpoint, what I'm really kind of paying attention to now is where baseball goes with its special event strategy here. While we were on the, our, our brief uh, break with the uh, podcast, I had a chance to take in both of the special event games that Major League Baseball did in Iowa with the Field of Dreams game and then in Williamsport, Pennsylvania with the MLB Little League Classic and really enjoyed them both. And it was an opportunity to see the the, the game played on a in a smaller scale and in, in, in a more sort of arguably pure format here, you know, and where the league now goes with its special event games, I'm really going to be interested to see. The Little League Classic is coming back. It's sort of become an annual thing, and it'll be back in 2023 with the Nationals and Phillies. But, um, you know, it looks like it may be two and done, at least for the time being, uh, with the Field of Dreams event. There is some major construction that's going to be going on at that complex in Iowa. Baseball, now that they can do more things internationally, they've got a whole world tour literally planned that's going to be going to London and then Korea and a number of other places here uh, in the next year and then and then others uh, beyond. But they've really got something special writ large with a lot of these special event games that, you know, sort of breaking out of the uh, sort of the everyday mundane here. And so where the league sort of goes, you know, particularly domestically in the U.S. with special event games, something I'm really watching closely. Yeah, I, you know, I, I wonder what is going to happen with the Field of Dreams concept, because I, I do believe it was successful both years this year, maybe not as much of a breakthrough as last year because last year it was new. But I think, you know, you like to create events that you can then keep doing year after year after year and don't have to reinvent the wheel, sort of like the way the hockey did, you know, hockey did that New Year's Day game now, which is outside. That becomes an annual thing. The NFL started with the Thursday night games to kick off. So I, I do wonder whether the Field of Dreams game in some form or fashion can be continued or whether they've, they've really got to rethink uh, and come up with another theme. But but again, congratulations to them on on the successes so far. And it, it does demonstrate that 
more casual fans can be brought in if you have something exciting to share. No doubt. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.